Good morning, everybody. Both those in the building having a wonderful conversation and those at home conversing with their housemates or their family or taking the opportunity to go for a sneaky toilet break. It seems that we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're very much on the tail end. We're in chapter 14 of a total of 16 chapters. So as we come before God's Word, uh, we pray that he might work in and through it and in us. Lord, we give you thanks uh, that you are near to the brokenhearted, to those who are crushed in spirit. Uh, Lord, we are a, a broken people. As we gaze upon your beauty and your perfections, we realize how little and how small we are and how desperately we need you in every aspect of our life. But we thank you for your word that, that holds up a mirror to us. It shows us who we are, but it also shows us wonderfully who you are. We pray that as we look to your word, uh, that we might see you clearly, we might see our need for you, and how immeasurably more worthy you are than anything else in this world. May we see and behold wonderful things in your word and may we be transformed by the working of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know how many of you are the kind of people who, before you buy anything, you go to anywhere, the very first thing you do is you read reviews. Whether it's of a particular product or a service or a business. But if you are the sort of person who likes to read reviews, you'll notice that for the exact same product, the exact same service, the exact same business, there will always be a massive diversity of views. Now, you've got to realise in some things there will be changes. Like if you're talking about food, there could be different qualities depending on who's on the cooking duties on that day. Service, you might get different experience. Some people are just way better at customer service than others. But even when you look at a product which is the same for everybody, you'll see that range of views of everything between the most pathetic thing that's ever been created, don't buy, to this is the best thing I've ever had. I know whenever we go away anywhere, I'm pretty keen to check out reviews for coffee to see where we should go, and and sometimes you find a place that's absolutely great, and others you think, who writes these reviews? That's just mildly coffee-flavoured milk. But that's subjective. Some people like some things, others don't like things a particular way. And that's normal. That's why you see such a broad perspective of these reviews. People have different expectations of what they like and what they're looking for. And today as we're looking at four different responses to Jesus, you're going to see that people have different expectations of what they think Jesus should be like for them. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever, Hebrews 13, 6. And despite the fact that we all have different subjective desires and things we'd like him to be, which... What that does doesn't really tell you so much about his worth as much as it tells us about what we value the most. 
Because whatever you value the most in life is the lens through which you will view absolutely everything else in the world. The thing you value most will determine how you view everything. And anything which impinges on the thing you value the most, you will dislike. You will resist. And in the same way as these four different people and groups of people look at Jesus, it will not only say in some cases a reflection of who Jesus is, but it will also be a reflection of the people's hearts, how the reality of who Jesus is just doesn't fit with what they truly value most in life. As we work our way through these 11 verses, we'll see some describe him as detestable. It's not the exact word in those verses, but that's a summary of, or valuable, or even most valuable in verses 3 to 9, the kind of this middle of the sandwich, because it is a bit of a sandwich construction, or the expendable in 10 to 11. And of course, we're going to ask, well, what value is Jesus to you? So firstly, detestable. Mark 14 to 15 is describing events in the final week of Jesus' life leading up to his his death and resurrection. And one of the common themes you see recurring in these chapters is the theme of Jesus being abandoned. We're surprised that even some of those who are closest to Jesus abandon him. And particularly at the time of his arrest, when we get to that part, even all of his disciples scatter. But the first group that we encounter in Mark chapter 14, we're not really surprised about their reaction. The chief priests and the scribes. Because throughout the Gospel of Mark and all the other Gospels, more often than not, their encounters with Jesus are in opposition. They don't like what he's teaching They don't like what he's saying about himself. They don't like what he's saying about the scriptures, how he's interpreting the scriptures. So we're not surprised that we expect them to have opposition. In recent chapters leading up to where we are now, we've seen Jesus come into Jerusalem in what is often referred to as the triumphal entry. When they recognise him as a king coming into Jerusalem. But also as he has come into Jerusalem, he's entered the temple and he's rebuked it for what it had become. He says, you have turned my father's house into a den of robbers when it was meant to be a house of prayer for the nations. And then in both Mark chapter 11 and chapter 13, we see Jesus describing the temple as being cursed for destruction, for not fulfilling what it was supposed to be doing And also, too, because Jesus was the final fulfilment of everything that it stood for. But for the chief priests and scribes, the temple was so central to their livelihood. That's that's the centre of where it all happened for them. It'd be like, for them hearing these things, it'd be like telling Mark Zuckerberg there's a global ban on social media advertising. I don't think he'd be too keen. The way the priests and scribes would think about Jesus, it's not they wouldn't be thinking, well, he's not really ideal. He's not really our cup of tea. They want him gone. It specifically says they planned to arrest him on the sly and to have him killed. 
Jesus wasn't just an inconvenience or someone that we can put up. He's not ideal. They wanted every trace of Jesus wiped off the face of the planet. They saw him as being so detestable, he needs to go. Now, sadly, we know there are still people who think this way. You hear people actually communicate that, that what this world needs is to get rid of every trace of Jesus. They don't like what he taught, they don't want what he claimed to be, they don't like what he stands for, primarily because who he is, what he taught, what he stands for, conflicts with their set of values, what they perceive to be most valuable, what they perceive that this world needs most. It could even describe some people hearing this message, here or online. They just want to remove every trace of Jesus from society. That's one of our four responses. You can just detest, want to get rid of him at all costs. The second where we'll spend a bit more time is actually a lady and a group who think both as valuable, but also a woman who sees him as most valuable. Now, unlike the first encounter with the chief priests and scribes, who are the religious leaders, the people who are supposed to understand the scriptures, the people who you would think to be the insiders, the people who you would presume would rightly recognise and receive Jesus, have actually had the strongest opposition to him. This second encounter in verses 3 to 9, there's a whole lot of language of outsiders. It takes place in a house in Bethany, outside of Jerusalem. In the home of Simon the leper. Now, presumably, he's already been healed of this, or a lot of these things probably wouldn't have taken place. But still, that stigma and that kind of title, Simon the leper, continues to remain. And adding to the outsider scenario, the central focus is on an unnamed woman. But let's have a look at the scene in verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, while she's not named here in Mark, in John's parallel account in chapter 12, it says this is Mary, Mary the sister of Martha. And while the guys are reclining at the table, this woman comes in with a flask of nard. Now, nard was like an oil or, in essence, extracted from the root of a particular plant. There is the plant there, and the image on the, on the right there is a product you can buy on Amazon right now. It's even called Mary Magdalena anointing oil, nine bucks for 30 mils of it. So Amazon now, nine bucks, 30 mils, but in first century, Amazon wasn't there. You couldn't say, Alexa, get me some nard. It was worth a lot. In fact, we're told in verse 5, worth 300 denarii. A denarius was the average of one day's wages, so 300 days' wages. We're talking roughly a year's salary this thing was worth. Now, if you project Australian average salary based on my Google search yesterday, we're talking about something worth about 90 grand. That's a fair bit of money. And especially when in first century women predominantly did not work, therefore didn't have an income of their own, 
It's most likely not something that she purchased, maybe a family heirloom that's been handed down. So this nard which he has, not only is it of great monetary value, but it's probably of some significant personal value too if it was a family heirloom passed down. But with this flask of expensive nard, 90 grand's worth by our reckoning, she doesn't just crack open the lid and have a little pour. She busts the whole thing open and pours the entirety of 90 grand of it on Jesus' head. Now, you'd expect a reaction if someone just just dumped 90 grand's worth of something on someone's head. You, you probably would react. If you were there and then, you would react. The others who were around at the time, which in Matthew's account, in Matthew 26, tells us that it's actually the disciples who were indignant that she did this. Jesus' closest 12, they were furious that this woman had done it. Or in John's account in chapter 12, particularly it focuses on Judas, saying Judas was the one who, who was condemning her for it, saying, man, we should have given this money to the poor. But John also says, not because Judas cared about the poor, but because he was the treasurer and he, and he liked to steal stuff. But in the eyes of the disciples, this woman and her actions were foolish. All of that money, couldn't we have given it to the poor? What a waste. Now, I'd imagine if you were that woman, you might be starting to second-guess your decision as well. You might start to think, well, man, if, these, if all these guys are saying it's a waste, I, maybe I've done the wrong thing, mate. I can't really put it back in now. Let's have a look at Jesus' response. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. So the disciples think it's a ridiculous thing she's done. Jesus says, what she's done is a beautiful thing. Now this isn't too long after, back in chapter 12, when we also saw Jesus bring the disciples' attention to the actions of another woman. In that case, it was a widow who had put in two small coins, two lepta, which we said to Give us a modern-day scenario is about the value of a small Big Mac meal. And he says, she gave all of what she had. He said to the disciples, have a look at that, learn from that. As opposed to all of the rich people who'd given lots of money beforehand, which cost them very little. So you've got two different women, two different scenarios that Jesus brings the disciples' attention to as an example of what true, wholehearted discipleship looks like. Miles apart in the eyes of the world, one is the equivalent of about a small Big Mac meal, another one's 90 grand. But both of them have done, as verse 8 says, what they could. Within their capacity, both of them have given an uninhibited expression of their worthiness of the one to whom they had given. In the temple, towards God, and here this lady on Jesus Christ himself. While both 
what the disciples thought was foolish. The things that the disciples thought, this should never happen. We should be embarrassed by this. Jesus says, not only that it was beautiful, he says, but people all around the world are going to hear about this. In fact, when they hear about the gospel, they're going to hear about this lady and and what she did. It's going to be specifically proclaimed in connection to the gospel as someone who recognises the immeasurable worth of Jesus Christ. The issue wasn't underestimating the value of the nard. It's not like she thought, oh, sorry, I thought I'd picked up the black and gold canola oil. Sorry, I didn't realise I picked up the 90 grand nard. It was an expression of the immeasurable value of Jesus Christ, which by comparison, the nard meant nothing to her. On the other hand, for the disciples to call it a waste, and they did call it a waste, says something about them dramatically undervaluing Jesus. To say it is a waste is to say that he's not worthy of that. Sure, yeah, put some of that on him, but not 90 grand's worth, not the whole lot. That seemed a little bit too rich, a little bit too much. But to cut him some slack, the disciples are still figuring out a lot about who Jesus is. And the disciples, as you read about them from Acts and onwards, they've got it. They they realise that he was worthy of that and so much more. But you naturally ask the question that they ask. That's a lot of money. There's a lot of poor people around. Why don't you just give some money to the poor? Why don't you just put a bid on Jesus and sell and give the rest to the poor? And some people see Jesus' response and think, gee, that's a bit harsh. He, he, He says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me with you. Jesus is not saying, poor is a problem this world's going to have, just give up. It's a, you're fighting an uphill battle, nothing's going to be done. When Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 15.11, which says that you will always have the poor with you, but then goes on to speak of how we should take opportunity to care and look after the poor. What he's communicating is not saying that the poor are not worthy of receiving care. But for him to say she has done a beautiful thing, he's acknowledging that he is something greater than any other person in this world. The woman seems to understand that. The disciples are still figuring some of those details out. After all, everything was created by him and for him. Both this lady and the widow of Mark 12 are examples of Christian discipleship, are examples of what it means like, he is my everything. He is the most valuable thing in my world. Everything else is relative to that. Anything else can come and go, but he is my all. Because what you value most, you will view everything else in relation to that. For this lady, Jesus was worth abundantly more than anything that she had. The disciples, yet to understand, but will reach that conclusion as well. So that's our second reaction. Immeasurably valuable, or at least valuable, and still figuring it out. To lastly, in the Sanger, expendable. 
So on the two pieces of bread of this sandwich, you've got those who you would expect to be positive in response to Jesus. You've got religious leaders and now one of his own 12, Judas, who according to John 12 was the treasurer and a thief. For Judas, he loved money. There's no doubt about it. That's why he was a treasurer and he was a thief. That's why in John chapter 12 where he says, you waste this money, you should have given it to the poor, is because as the one who handled the funds that went to the poor, he was hoping to get a cut of it. Or take a cut of it, not be, be given a cut of it. But being aware that Jesus is speaking, though his days are numbered, and also angered by the waste that he's just seen, knowing that the chief priests and scribes really want Jesus dead, Judas is thinking, there could be some cash in this. I've got, I've got insider knowledge. Now, yes, we read in Luke that Satan entered Judas and he went out to betray. But do keep in mind, throughout the scriptures, Judas is held responsible for his own actions. Judas and anybody else doesn't have the excuse, oh, Satan made me do it. Sin is never, for Judas or for anyone else, is never a blame game. We don't say, oh, I did this, but that's because of my genetics. Oh, I did that because of my family. I did this because of this condition. I did this because of the peers, the people I hang around with. You and I are always responsible for our own actions. As James describes it very succinctly in his first chapter, it says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Yes, Judas's own desire was, was fueled certainly by Satan, but his own desire led him out to betray and look for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Then that desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. We sin not because of an external influence, though they, they, they may influence us, but the final decision of our actions is our own choice. We are enticed by our own desires within ourselves. But why Judas? You think, Judas had seen so much. He was one of the inner 12. He'd spent these three years with Jesus. He heard all the things that he's taught, seen all of the miracles. He was one of the 12 when they were first sent out to, to go proclaim the gospel, repentance and the kingdom of God, cast out demons, heal the sick. Did the same with the 72 as recorded in Luke chapter 12. They come back rejoicing. Even demons submit to us. Yet despite of all his, of his nearness to Jesus, all of his experience in working alongside Jesus and Jesus' other disciples, he still loved something more than Jesus himself. He was still had a greater value placed upon the dollar. Sadly, he's like so many in churches all around the world. People who are in the midst of God's people, who, people who are serving alongside God's people, experiencing the same as everyone else around them. But when faced with a choice between faithfulness to Jesus 
and a competing desire for something outside of Christ, then comes, where does my heart truly lie? Who is truly more valuable, Jesus or whatever this thing over here is? The thing that we love and value most always takes precedence. And it's sad, I'm sure you have as well, seen so many people leave churches, leave the Christian faith, so to speak, abandon Christ because the call to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, sounded attractive until such point they had to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. If you choose something else over Christ, that thing is your life. Colossians says, Christ, who is your life? That is true of all true disciples. Christ is your life. A true disciple can proclaim alongside Paul, to live is Christ. Everything else can come and go. Christ is life. But in these 11 verses, you see some who think he's detestable, want nothing to do with him. Some who value him above everything. And others who like the experience of being in proximity of him and his people. But their heart is somewhere else. Only one of those is a sign of a genuine follower of Christ. So where does our heart lie? Like you see, we've seen four responses. One who wants nothing to do with Jesus. Judas, who kind of wants something, as long as it doesn't impinge on the things that he loves more. Now we've seen often in Mark's writing, he uses this sandwich formation where where he has a central event, the meat, or if you're vegan, let's call it the tofu. And then you've got your bread where the meat bit is the central focal event which helps us to understand the surrounding events. Like we saw that previously with the fig tree and the temple earlier back in chapter 11. We're here, the central focus is upon this woman, considered an outsider in so many ways by the rest of the world, who wants and values Jesus above everything. Even the religious, the leaders, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Remove him at all cost. If you think that way, and you want all traces of Jesus to be removed from society, then you stand aligned with them. That'll be your opinion, that'll be your review but I guarantee it's a review that will be corrected when Jesus returns. The language of Philippians 2 says, when he comes, every knee will bow, including those who think we need to obliterate him off the face of the world. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. My prayer for those who are in that position is that they would see him as he is truly now, not wait till then when it's too late that they would turn and trust 
him for a salvation right here and now and behold the beauty of who he is and the blessing of a relationship with him. That Jesus' return would be a day that they would earnestly long for. The other side of the bread in the singer is Judas. And Judas is a, is a warning for all of us in a, in a gathering like this that merely being in the presence of Christian things, even doing Christian things, does not naturally equate that you are a true disciple of Christ. I probably think there's nothing that burdens my heart more than the concept of people who are in church but who are not in Christ. Who think that being in a building is like being a member of a club. It's something you enjoy, you enjoy the benefits of, but at the end of the day, it's not first and foremost. Because a person who wrongly thinks that they are in Christ when they are just purely in church will not look for salvation. One day, like Judas, when faced with a choice between faithfulness to Jesus or faithfulness to something else, their heart will be exposed. And they will choose and they will turn from Jesus to pursue the thing they value most. Sometimes even blaming Jesus or the church along the way. Usually because they do not understand either Jesus or the church that they've turned from. But the inside of the singer, the meat, the tofu, we've got two statements about the value of this Jesus, both from the woman and from the disciples. The disciples who were still developing in their understanding thought this woman had gone too far. It's like, yeah, I see Jesus is important, it's great that you want to honour him, but that's a little bit too much. That's, that's a little bit too fanatical for our liking. Isn't that sad when you see that happen even in the Christian community? When someone is pursuing after Jesus with all of their heart and another Christian says to them, settle on, you're getting a bit fanatical. You're getting a bit too into this whole Jesus stuff. Just, just make it a bit more comfortable so it's, it doesn't actually feel any different than anyone else in the world. I love that you're a Christian, but just you know, that passion and that devotion you've got, you know, it's making me feel a little bit uncomfortable, a bit unsettled about my own. So just, just tone it down, say so we just all blend in nicely. Jesus highlighted this woman as an example of discipleship. He says, she has done a beautiful thing. We should value him above all else. It should re- result in us doing extravagant things. We're called to have an all-in devotion that knows his immeasurable worth, that withholds nothing, that has happily let go of anything that is competing in our heart's desires. Because we've seen our unworthiness, we've seen our hopelessness, we've seen our rebellion, and a hope that can only be found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he has died the death we deserve for our sin and is raised to newness of life and gives us newness of life. His life was given in exchange for ours and through repentance and faith, he is ours. 
He was raised to victory, giving life and power to his people. And if you are trusting in Christ, he's not just a part of your life, he is your life. Who, as Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that so often we get distracted by the cares of this world. We acknowledge that we, we have days when, when our heart might actually demonstrate to, to have a love for something greater than you, to love something greater than you, not to, for something that is greater. Lord, we ask that you would do a deep transforming work in us that we might behold something of your glorious nature. That the things that distract us in this world, that are the common pursuit of man, might be negligible to us. That, Lord, that we might be people who can say, Christ is our life, to, to live as Christ, to die as game. That we might have an all-in, wholehearted response to him, in every aspect of our life. Forgive us from when we have not done that and transform us that we might become more and more like that every day in which we depend upon you to do this by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.